Summer Special in August 2021. Summertime and the listening is easy. Let's dive into summer fun with some beach time and sea bathing and then picnics and summer food, Tudor style. So kick back, get some sun, and enjoy a journey to summer's past. It's summertime, and you know what that means. Beach time! Getting our toes in the sand, building sandcastles, playing in the water, catching the waves. At the end of a long day, long walks listening to the sound of the water, gorgeous sunsets, ice cream all day long to cool off. What could be better? Going to the beach, or more poetically, the seaside, is an annual tradition for millions. Seems like that would have been the case forever, right? Who wouldn't love going to the seaside? When we think of Jane Austen's novels, we often think of the parlor. Well-dressed Bingley sisters making pointed comments in the grand rooms of Netherfield Hall. Mr. Knightley visiting Emma and Mr. Woodhouse at Hartfield. Lady Catherine de Bourgh holding court at Rosings. And Mr. Darcy watching Elizabeth play the piano at Pemberley. Ladies read books and walk around the room. Gentlemen write letters. Relationships develop and dissolve. But what might happen if they journeyed to the seaside? It turns out that Jane Austen's characters have a love-hate relationship with the sea, drawn by the lure and frightened by the danger of sea bathing. What was it like going to the seaside in the world of Jane Austen? The relationship between Austen's characters and the sea runs throughout her novels. Going to the seaside represents the possibility of healing, a welcome respite, a promise of fun. The seaside also represents something forbidden, from inappropriate relationships to sexual promiscuity. The history of sea bathing and spending time at the seaside feels like a fun way to think about Austen's novels. And Austen's characters and their comments about the sea offers us a fun way to think about the history of beach trips. What a great way to spend some time this summer, sea bathing with Jane Austen. Quote, the sea is very rarely of use to anybody. I am sure it almost killed me once. The Benefits of the Seaside Mr. Woodhouse, the always worried father in Jane Austen's novel, Emma, is distressed by his daughter's decision to take her family to the sea. It's not surprising, of course, as he saw danger in the most ordinary of circumstances. His concern in this case was made worse because she and her family had gone to the seaside instead of visiting him. Here he is complaining to Isabella. Quote, it was an awkward business, my dear. You're spending the summer at South End instead of coming here. I never had much opinion of the sea air. Isabella defends her decision, made together with her husband, as having been, in fact, the right thing for her family. Quote, Mr. Winfield most strenuously recommended it, sir, or we should not have gone. He recommended it for all the children, but particularly for the weakness in little Bella's throat, both sea air and bathing. 
The notion that sea bathing and the sea air would benefit the family was not uncommon at the time. Dr. Richard Russell, who was the son of a surgeon, took particular interest in the health benefits of sea bathing. He published a book about his 25-year experience with the use of seawaters to cure disease and became quite famous because of this. He was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society in 1752. As his practice grew, he built a house near the seashore to make the treatment easier for his patients. Known as Russell House, the property was rented by the Duke of Cumberland after Dr. Russell's death and visited by the Prince of Wales, that same Prince of Wales who went on to become Prince Regent and who asked Jane Austen to dedicate Emma to him. And George III, whose various illnesses challenged the workings of the monarchy and the government, chose to recuperate from an illness at Weymouth, which gave the place a royal stamp of approval. After all, if the seaside was good enough for the king, it was good enough for everyone else, right? The Austin family certainly visited the seaside, and Jane herself took several trips to the shore. According to letters, Jane visited Devon in 1801 and 1802, and there's that, according to legend, meeting with the love of her life there. In 1803, she went to Ramsgate, where her brother Frank was stationed. In 1804, she and her parents visited Lyme Regis. According to her letter to Cassandra, quote, I continue quite well, in proof of which I have bathed again this morning. It was absolutely necessary that I should have had the little fever and indisposition which I had. It has been all the fashion this week in Lyme. Austin's humor comes through in the way she described her experience. She was feeling well and contented. She was enjoying the sea bathing, and she was well aware she was following the fashion of the day in feeling ill and taking in the waters. Jane Austen sent several characters to the seaside in the hopes of improving their health. In Persuasion, Austen describes Lyme Regis in ways that show an appreciation of the beauty of the area, writing, quote, A very strange stranger it must be, who does not see the charms in the immediate environs of Lyme to make him wish to know it better. Later in the novel, you'll find this description, They praised the morning, gloried in the sea, sympathized in the delight of the fresh-feeling breeze, and were silent, till Henrietta suddenly began again with, Oh, yes, I am quite convinced that, With very few exceptions, the sea air always does good. Henrietta later continued, There can be no doubt of its having been of the greatest service to Dr. Shirley. After his illness, last spring twelfth month, he declares himself that coming to Lyme for a month did him more good than all the medicine he took, and that by being by the sea always makes him feel young again. Now, I cannot help thinking it a pity that he does not live entirely by the sea. From Persuasion. And in Sanditon, there is also a description of the transformative powers of the sea. Quote, Nobody could catch cold by the sea. Nobody wanted appetite by the sea. Nobody wanted spirits. Nobody wanted strength. Sea air was healing, softening, relaxing, fortifying and bracing, seemingly just what was wanted. Sometimes one, sometimes the other. If the sea breeze failed, the sea bath was certain corrective. And where bathing disagreed, 
The sea air alone was evidently designed by nature for the cure. Still, not all Austin's characters are convinced that the sea offers healing powers. Mr. Woodhouse continues to resist such a notion. Quote, Ah, my dear, but Perry had many doubts about the sea doing her any good. And as to myself, I have long been perfectly convinced that though perhaps I never told you so before, the sea is rarely of any use to anybody. I am sure it almost killed me once. From Emma. The sea is no beautifier, certainly. Sailors do grow old betimes. I have observed it. They soon lose the look of youth. Dangers of the sea. We might dismiss Mr. Woodhouse's concerns about the sea easily. After all, he worried about everything. In fact, his excessive worries are humorous in the awful in the novel, as Emma gently guided him to overcome them to leave the house at all. But is there something in his hesitation to visit the sea? The seaside did include dangers, and these were well known to Austin. Let's take a quick look at the history of the British Sea in Austin's lifetime. Significantly, during Austin's lifetime, Britain was almost constantly at war. Austin was born in 1775, a year before the Declaration of Independence was written. The American War of Independence would go on until 1783. The loss of the colonies was a huge blow to George III and the nation's pride. Ongoing illnesses of the king threatened the monarchy, and Parliament debated how to deal with the issue. The French Revolution broke out in 1789, threatening to stir revolutionary spirit in Britain. In 1793, Britain went to war with France, the British Royal Navy, such a respected power, experienced two mutinies in 1797, threatening a revolution in Britain. In 1798, United Irishmen rebelled against British rule in Ireland. In the midst of this chaos and some resistance, the Act of Union created the United Kingdom in 1801. The Royal Navy achieved significant victory at the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805, but national hero Admiral Lord Nelson was killed. The Duke of Wellington died in 1815 at the Battle of Waterloo, another decisive victory for Britain that came at a cost. In other words, it was a time of fear and war and civil unrest. Particularly during the Napoleonic Wars, the threat of invasion was real and, of course, centered at the seaside. During this time, Jane Austen and her family grew up, put on plays in their family home, and started their adult lives. Austen began writing with drafts of Lady Susan, Eleanor and Marianne, and First Impressions coming in the 1790s. She continued writing and revising over the years, completing Susan and submitting First Impressions for publication. In 1803, Austen sold Susan, now called Northanger Abbey, to a London publisher who purchased the copyright but did not publish the novel. Austen's father died in 1805, plunging Mrs. Austen, Jane, and Cassandra into an unsettled life, where they moved frequently until they eventually settled in Chawton Cottage in 1809. Then Austen got back to work, writing and revising. In 1810, Sense and Sensibility, which was earlier, Eleanor and Marianne, was accepted for publication. In 1811, Austen was working on Mansfield Park. Sense and Sensibility was published with the author identified as a, quote, lady. And Austen continued to revise First Impressions, which she renamed 
Pride and Prejudice. In 1812, Austen sold Pride and Prejudice. The author was identified as the author of Sense and Sensibility. In 1813, Austen completed and sold Mansfield Park. In 1814, Austen began Emma. Mansfield Park was published as, quote, by the author of Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice. In 1815, Austen completed Emma and began Persuasion. Emma was published as by the author of Pride and Prejudice and was dedicated to the Prince Regent. In 1816, Austen began to feel ill but kept working. She purchased the copyright for Susan back from the printer and revised it, and she completed Persuasion. In 1817, Austen began Sanditon, but she was becoming ill. She went to Winchester for treatment and died there on the 18th of July. She was buried in Winchester Cathedral, and in December of that year, 1817, Northanger Abbey and Persuasion were published with a biographical note that identified Austen as the author. So Austen grew up and wrote her novels in a time of war. Her brothers were members of the militia and the Navy. Her sister's fiancé died while serving as an army captain. The war appears in all of the novels, particularly in Persuasion, but also in pretty visibly in Pride and Prejudice, where the presence of the militia would have reminded contemporary readers about the possibility of invasion. The ongoing wars meant there was no travel to the continent for a holiday. People needed to have their holidays in Britain. The seaside was appealing for that, despite the possibility of invasion. After all, the Royal Navy was the best in the world and could certainly defend the homeland. In addition, the need to move the militia to the shore meant the improvement of roads and made it easier to travel for soldiers and citizens and seagoers alike. Jane Austen, her family, and her characters headed to the seaside. Austen herself was reported as being happy to leave Bath in 1805 and head to Southampton Water and a home in Castle Square. Brothers Frank and Charles were training at Portsmouth at the Royal Naval Base. Reportedly full of gangs, prostitutes, and riots, Portsmouth was nothing like that quiet upbringing the family had experienced in Steventon. But when Fanny Price thought about Portsmouth, she described it thus, quote, Everything looked so beautiful under the influence of such a sky, the effects of the shadows pursuing each other on the ships at Spithead and the island beyond, with the ever-varying hues of the sea now at high water, dancing in its glee and dashing against the ramparts with so fine a sound. Seems like a good place to have a good time. There has been a solemn engagement between them ever since October, formed at Weymouth and kept a secret from everybody. Scandals of the seaside. Even though they didn't face actual dangers from invasion, Some characters did face a different kind of danger, scandal. As we move into the Georgian and Regency periods with Jane Austen, sea bathing had become associated with scandals and sexuality. For one thing, the clothing left little to the imagination. We might think of the photographs of the voluminous sea bathing costumes with long sleeves and bloomers. Not in Jane Austen's day. In fact, Many bathers went in without any clothing at all. Engravings and images from the 18th century show women using bathing machines, a sort of moving shed that bathers would get into and be pulled into the water. They would be able to disrobe in private and then enter the water. If someone couldn't swim or was afraid of the water, 
dippers would help them get in safely. There are images of women peeking out of the bathing machine to make sure the coast was clear, so to speak. Contemporary images show men and women bathing nude. Around this time, there were attempts to pass laws that men and women must bathe in separate beaches. Some women did wear bathing costumes, but these were typically linen or flannel shirts that clung to their bodies while wet. They weren't exactly a way to protect modesty. The seaside was associated with the possibility of pleasure-seeking, nudity, and inappropriate behavior. And that's what we often find in the scandals of Austen's novels. One of the scandals in Emma was the secret engagement hidden by Frank Churchill and Jane Fairfax. Frank Churchill was a wily character throughout the novel, repeatedly disappointing his father by not fulfilling a promise to visit, even missing his father's marriage to Miss Taylor. When Frank finally did appear, Mr. Knightley developed an instant dislike and suspicion. And as Mr. Knightley had been a reliable observer of others, it's easy for the readers to accept his views. Frank flirted with Emma and teased Jane about Mr. Dixon. Jane Fairfax, on the other hand, was presented in admirable terms. She lost her parents and lived on the generosity of others. She was a bit of a foil to Emma. When Emma had an easier life, Jane still seemed to accomplish more. This made Emma jealous and cranky. When Miss Bates reported Jane's goal of reading 100 books, Emma made a list of more than 100, but didn't actually get around to reading them. Jane didn't do anything that might cause us to suspect her of subterfuge. But Jane was keeping a big secret. At Weymouth, the seaside area that represents the possibility of behaving badly, Jane was persuaded to enter into a secret engagement with Frank Churchill. The engagement couldn't be announced because his aunt wouldn't allow him to marry so far beneath him. So somehow, this nice, dependable young woman put herself in a position where she had to lie to her family and friends, pretend to be preparing to become a governess, and hide an engagement to a man whose family thought she wasn't good enough. For Frank to conceal the engagement seems less surprising, but he carried it to greater lengths while at Highbury. His attentions to Emma convinced his father and Mrs. Weston that he meant to propose to Emma. And even Emma believed for a while he would make an offer. He subjected Jane to a front row seat to his flirtations, made worse by his teasing. Only after Mrs. Churchill died did the truth come out. Mr. and Mrs. Weston were horrified by the hurt they believed it would cause Emma. With Mrs. Weston blurting out her own shock, quote, You may well be amazed. But it is even so. There has been a solemn engagement between them ever since October, formed at Weymouth, and kept a secret from everybody in Emma. The possibility of entering into such an astonishing situation, a secret engagement, the need to lie to everyone, and just wait around for Mrs. Churchill to die, is perhaps possible only at the seaside. The seaside is associated with one of the most ungentlemanly gentlemen in Austen's novels, Mr. Wickham. We probably find him appealing at first, just as Elizabeth Bennet did. Wickham was handsome and charming compared to the sullen and proud Mr. Darcy, which made him even more appealing. But once we hear Darcy's story, our opinion of Wickham is likely to change. Promised a family living in old Mr. Darcy's will, Wickham requested a considerable sum of money and was granted it. Later, he needed more money and asked for more. Darcy refused him. After explaining all of this in the letter to Elizabeth, 
Darcy went on to share his sister's story. After their parents died, Darcy became Georgiana's ward, along with her cousin, Colonel Fitzwilliam. The two men set up an establishment for Georgiana and appointed Mrs. Young to preside over it. Mrs. Young had an unknown relationship with Wickham. And when she took 15-year-old Georgiana to Ramsgate, Wickham followed. Mrs. Young helped Wickham win over Georgiana, quote, whose affectionate heart retained such a strong impression of his kindness to her as a child that she was persuaded to believe herself in love and consent to an elopement from Pride and Prejudice. Fortunately, Darcy unexpectedly visited his sister, discovered the plan, and sent Wickham away before he could snag Georgiana's fortune and revenge himself on Darcy. At Ramsgate, which seems to have been a particularly scandalous setting in Austin's eyes, Georgiana narrowly escaped entering into a marriage that surely would have led to her heartache. Years later, Wickham was again seaside when posted to Brighton. And to Brighton went Lydia Bennett. Despite being barely older than Georgiana, Lydia had been so indulged by her parents that she was quickly convinced to believe herself in love with Wickham and agreed to run away with him. She may have initially believed he intended to marry her, but was perfectly willing to go along with him even when he didn't go through with the marriage. When Darcy discovered the pair in London, he attempted to convince Lydia to leave Wickham and return to her family and friends. Her attitude was in keeping with her actions at Brighton. Quote, she would not hear of leaving Wickham. She was sure they should be married sometime or other, and it did not much signify when. From Pride and Prejudice. The despair into which their actions had thrown her family did not matter to Lydia or Wickham, and they were only married when compelled to do so by Darcy. The seaside then might be a place of beauty and healing, but it was also a place of scandal and put women in a frame of mind to make decisions that led to behavior that was quite objectionable. Jane Fairfax and Georgiana Darcy were well-intentioned and misled or prevailed upon. Lydia Bennett was a happy participant, all associated with the seaside. A little sea bathing would set me up forever. The appeal of the seaside. Still, despite all the potential danger and encouragement of scandals, the seaside beckoned. Before Lydia's scandal, Mrs. Bennet and Kitty bewail Mr. Bennet's unwillingness to take the whole family there. If one could go to Brighton, observed Mrs. Bennet. Oh, yes, if one could but go to Brighton. But Papa is so disagreeable. A little sea bathing would set me up forever. And my Aunt Phillips is sure it would do me a great deal of good, added Kitty from Pride and Prejudice. Even after Lydia's scandal, the lure of Brighton still tugged at Kitty, who assured her father, quote, If I should ever go to Brighton, I should behave better than Lydia. But Mr. Bennett had finally had enough, and Kitty was forbidden to go anywhere near the seaside. Emma, who was reportedly Jane Austen's favorite character, also lamented her lack of experience with the seaside. Mr. Woodhouse was not able to prevent his elder daughter from taking her children to the sea, but he did prevent Emma from going. She longed for the chance, quote, I must beg you not to talk of the sea. It makes me envious and miserable, I who have never seen it. South End is prohibited, if you please. From Emma. Emma's wish for a visit to the seaside was ultimately fulfilled at the happy conclusion of the novel. Her marriage to Mr. Knightley was scheduled, quote, while John and Isabella were still at Hartfield, to allow them the fortnight's absence in a tour to the seaside, 
from Emma. So Emma got her wish and went to the seaside. A fitting ending for our discussion of Jane Austen and the exciting world of sea bathing. But I must make a confession. Though going to the beach in summer seems to us a perfect activity, in Regency times, it was not usually a warm weather activity. For the seawater to do the most good, people should visit in fall or even winter when the water was cold. Still, I think it's fine to indulge ourselves just a bit during these final weeks of summer and imagine ourselves joining Jane Austen at the seaside. Thank you for going sea bathing with me and Jane Austen. Hope you are having a wonderful summer and making lots of fun memories. Stay tuned for more summer summer specials and coming in September, season two of Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. Thank you for joining me for Summer Fun with Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. Hope you had a great time. I'm getting ready to launch season two in September. Big news, great guests, and lots of fun with your favorite Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. Enjoy your August, stay safe, and let's keep shaking up history together. (laughs) 